So Sam, Samuel, Schmulek, how are you doing on this fine uh, pre-winter morning? I'm doing pretty good, actually. Um, You're very quiet over there. Yeah, I'm a little tired. How come? I did some exercise prior to arriving at the studio. I played a racket sport. Uh, which one? It is the same name as a fruit or a legume, maybe? Apple ball? Nope. Oh, squash. Correct. Is this part of your assimilation into law school culture? Well, listen, it's good exercise. It's free because we have access to the school gym. We being uh, law students at McGill University? Well, everyone at McGill University. It's a good run for 45 minutes. Working off all of the uh, indulgences of food tourism that we did while in New York. Very nice segue. We were in New York City, New York, and had a great time, I would say. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to everyone at Jewish Voice for Peace at Columbia who brought us out there. We did another one of the uh, anti-Semitism workshops that we've been talking about on the show. Um, David, I think you meant the Columbia slash Barnard JVP. Oh, yeah. The relationship between uh, these two institutions is a bit murky to both of us. But thank you to, to everyone at the JVP at both of those schools who uh, brought us to do the anti-Semitism workshop. Yeah, we, we managed to meet up with some folks and do some interviews in New York that we'll be releasing in, in the weeks and months to come. Nice little teaser. Yeah. And uh, we were able to get back just in time for this mass demonstration that had been planned for months in Montreal. And this is sort of tying into our last episode about the rise of the right in Quebec. Over, over 150 groups uh, formed a coalition and had a great demonstration through the streets of Montreal. Yeah, you were there. I was not. Yeah, I mean, you were pretty sick after the trip. Yeah. <laughs> I actually went and got out of the metro and I'm like, I am way too tired and went all the way home. Yeah, I mean, A for effort. One thing I, I, I do want to say is I give a shkoyak to the folks who the night before the demonstration defaced this monument to a uh, famous white supremacist, a uh, key architect of uh, the ongoing genocide against indigenous peoples, one John A. McDonald. Yeah, that was definitely an interesting take on the takedown statues movement. I believe it's actually quite difficult to pull those things down. So I assume that people were trying to show the heinousness of this particular character and uh, succeeded fairly well. So shkoyach to the folks who did that anonymously the night before the demonstration and to everybody who organized for anti-racist and anti-fascist politics in Montreal. Speaking of demonstrations oh, against yeah. provincial political decisions. Uh, I'd like to see where you're going with this one. How about we switch gears to talk about the ways in which national Jewish organizations maligned an imam and how a Toronto-based newspaper disproved those allegations. Uh, yeah, we're definitely talking about that today, but uh, Sam, that segue didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I know, the bit was kind of like a non-sequitur segue, you know, okay. like speaking of and then not connecting them. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm with you to an extent. All right, well... Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, we spent a section at the end of the show talking about a situation in which uh, Ayman Al-Khasrawi, who is an imam in Toronto, was targeted and attacked through the mainstream media, but also by national Jewish groups for what had been described as an anti-Semitic tirade. And it turned out that thanks to the investigation of Jennifer Yang at the Toronto Star, it was revealed that the video translation that had been made available to the media had been mistranslated and edited. For some more context on the story, you can press pause on this particular episode, go back one, and listen to episode 34 of Trafe Podcast. Yeah, and we'll also have a link to the Toronto Star expose. And Eamon himself wrote an editorial in the Star in the wake of its publication. That is all true. But we, we wanted to go a bit deeper into an element of the story, which was the involvement of Bernie Farber, who we've had on the show before. He used to be the head of the Canadian Jewish Congress. Uh, we, we did an episode last year about the dissolution of that organization. It's interesting because because Bernie appears to be one of the only people or one of the few people who is given space at the pan-Canadian level to criticize the institutional Jewish community as someone who came from it. 
Yeah. And the reason that we were very interested in having this conversation right now is not just following up on the story and talking about his role in it, but also understanding this as part of the context right now where Jewish institutions have shifted so far to the right and so singularly focused on Israel advocacy that there has been left such an enormous gap uh, where someone who was once at the head of Canada's institutional Jewish community is now in a position of acting as a critic of it. Without further banter, here is our recorded conversation with Bernie Farber that took place about two weeks ago. Okay, so my name is Bernie Farber. I'm the uh, former CEO of Canadian Jewish Congress and now the retired executive director of the Mosaic Institute, where I worked for a number of years in trying to bring communities together that were in conflict with each other. Um, And I I suppose to a great extent that's what brought me to this issue in the first place. Well, Bernie, thanks for joining us for a second time. Uh, I'm absolutely uh, pleased to be here with you guys. It's, It's always a lot of fun. Well, just to set the scene a little bit, a Toronto Star article came out a few days ago. I believe 10 different people sent me a link to it. Your name was prominently featured in it, and it involved an individual named Ayman Al-Kasrawi for comments that he allegedly made. Could you kind of give us an overview of the story for people who didn't read it or or don't have a sense of what was going on? Sure. Uh, Ayman was a prayer leader at the Majid, which is a downtown uh, Toronto mosque. And uh, during Ramadan, he was involved in uh, leading a number of hadiths and supplications. And they taped, they videotaped these prayers and put it up on their website. And so 18 months later, um, a fellow by the name of Jonathan Halevi, who used to run a website called CIJ, and I can never remember what the initial stood for, and he claims to be a major general of the Israel Defense Forces and a fluent Arabist. Uh, So he put up onto his website a translation that basically suggested that one of Amon's supplications dealt with the fact that Jews defile the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Now, understand that this hadith and supplication lasted probably more than an hour, and what was put online was a translation of a 45-second piece. Shortly after the terrible events in Quebec and Saint-Foy, this hits the news cycle, and a number of Jewish groups, but specifically B'nai B'rith Canada, put out a a strong press release denouncing this and suggested that uh, action should be taken. turned out Eamon was working as a teaching assistant at Ryerson and a part-time prayer leader at the Majid. The Majid put him on suspension while Ryerson... Uh, immediately, actually, or uh, quite shortly after the B'nai B'rith request, uh, fired him. To the best of my knowledge, there was no internal investigation. Everybody kind of accepted the status quo in terms of what was said and what was asked, especially at a time that was very um, heightened in terms of Islamophobia that was going on, Jewish-Muslim relations. It was a difficult time. 
so when did when did this situation sort of come to you? Like, how did that happen? Three months later, I received a request from a Facebook friend who is involved with the uh, downtown Toronto mosque to meet with them and Eamon to see if I might be able to help and work with him to develop some anti-racism training um, and the like. I certainly agreed to do that because that's what we do at the Mosaic Institute. I met with Eamon a few days later. We had a lengthy chat, and he just kept on saying to me, I know that I said things that were wrong, and I ought not to have said them, but I didn't say that. I didn't say what they are accusing me of saying. I never said I wanted to kill Jews and that Jews defiled Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's not what I meant to say. But I, you know, I want help understanding how to go about doing things properly. I noted immediately, I mean, I've been in you know, business of dealing with anti-Semitism for over 30 years. And usually, you know, when you're in a room with an anti-Semite, uh, they don't hide their feelings. It's not like they're shy about their Jew hatred. Uh, they're actually quite proud of it. This was not an anti-Semite. Is it possible that he may have said things that people have construed as anti-Semitic or that were anti-Semitic? Possibly. But that does not make one necessarily an anti-Semite. And so instead of developing anti-racism modules, I decided that it would, we would best go forward on dialoguing around the Abrahamic faiths, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And over a three-month period, maybe a little bit more, uh, Eamon went through all of this. I did ask permission of Eamon and the mosque to bring a journalist into the mix, a Toronto Star journalist whom I had great faith. And she came on board, and the first thing she said to me, and uh, you know, I've been kicking myself because we all learn lessons about these things. She said, do you have a second translation of what Eamon said? And I said, well, actually, I don't. (laughs) I put her in touch with the mosque. They gave her access to the tape. And she got not one, but I think four, uh, maybe five, different translations from some of the top academic translators. And each one of these these academics basically said that what Eamon is alleged to have said was at best misinterpreted and at worst manipulated and mistranslated. And that basically Eamon was praying on behalf of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and made note of the fact that the Israeli Defense Forces who are at the mosque, in fact, defile the mosque itself, which is significantly different than saying Jews are a defilement of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So this was really more a political statement than it was an anti-Semitic statement. You know, many Jews would not like to hear that and would vehemently disagree with that. You know, I might be one of them. But that doesn't matter. It does not make him an anti-Semite. And it kind of put this whole issue onto a different road. Uh, He has since been reinstated at the mosque, but not reinstated at Ryerson. So that's the story as it stands. And so I want to talk a bit about the tension you're talking about in terms of many Jews would not want to hear that talking about the Israeli forces behavior around the Al-Aqsa Mosque is different than talking about Jews. One thing that has been very clear since this article came out is that both B'nai B'rith Canada and the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs have not only refused to apologize for their stance on this, but have actually doubled down in their attacks on him, saying that this doesn't make any difference. Uh, like, yes. what, what is your take on, on what's going on right now? Well, look, I, you know, I come from a completely different place 
than do uh, you know other Jewish leadership. Um, my position is, and this is something that my father taught me a long time ago, is that you know within the Jewish tradition, when somebody holds out their hand sincerely and wishes to make teshuvah and wishes to apologize, uh, then we are commanded to accept that apology and move on. Um, and, and so it's surprising to me that those in Jewish leadership have refused to do so. But do you think that he is owed an apology from institutions like those who have been attacking him? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable going into who owes who apologies right now. I'll tell you what I wish. I wish they just would have accepted his apology and used it as an open door to start creating better dialogue. You know, apologies back and forth at this stage, really, I, I, I don't think get us anywhere. Uh, I, I think that we, we have to find better ways to open doors and not shut them. And when, you know, when you have statements that were made by Jewish leadership that are so ending, if I could put it that way, so final, mm. um, it sends a message to members of the Jewish community, by the way, many of whom I think were willing to to use it as a means to engage in dialogue. I hear your point about not looking for apologies per se, but one of the things that David and I do on the show is try to understand where certain politics and worldviews come from. And a narrative that emerged after this story broke was that this was kind of in the family of like fake news, that there was like a certain responsibility on the part of media institutions to like do due diligence. But one of the things that seems clear to me, and I'm not sure if we will necessarily agree on this one, but this particular approach has to be understood within the context of the ideas that are being expressed by groups like Sija and B'nai B'rith, that there is responsibility for fostering that kind of an approach toward uh, Muslim communities. Okay, let, let's stop at that point, because here you and I agree. You know, my, for, for the last, certainly since I left Canadian Jewish Congress, and we had a, a long chat last year about, you know, all of that, and, you know, the changes that, that I went through in terms of trying to get my mind and heart uh, more opened on this issue, uh, meaning Muslim-Jewish relations. I have worked exceedingly hard over the last three or four years especially in trying to open doors between communities that have heretofore never, ever spoken to each other. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling if you think about it. There were times back in the early 2000s when imams and rabbis did get together. I, I made those arrangements. But, we, you know, we never talked about the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room, of course, was, was the Middle East and was Israel. And at that time, I thought that that was the right thing to do, to just find areas of agreement as opposed to focusing on areas of disagreement. And I think that that was wrong. I think that uh, that was a mistake at that time, and is certainly not the way to go. I mean, if you're going to get into true forms of honest dialogue, the elephant in the room always has to be addressed. doesn't mean it has to be addressed immediately, but it has to be acknowledged. So that is what I have been trying to do, and we have taken some baby steps. But it's pretty remarkable, if you think about it, in a country like ours, that you have two significant communities, both of whom are the targeted communities for hate, who could find ways to help each other out and be each other's best friends, if you will, instead continue not just to travel down separate paths, but continue to at least put walls up so they don't see each other as they continue down those separate paths and refuse to even shout over the wall. 
the other element of this for for us is viewing this in our current context, where especially here in Quebec, where you have a huge increase in, in far right organizing that's happening. You have like right now, the mayor of Montreal is running an openly anti-Semitic candidate, Nutramont. These things don't seem to be of interest to any organized Jewish groups. And I'm interested in your take on this because in the 80s and the 90s, you were actually very involved and, and in many times a, a serious target of the Heritage Front and other similar neo-Nazi groups during the last wave of far-right organizing. And I'm really interested in your take on the way that Jewish institutions are now looking away from this and focusing instead on the Muslim community and focusing instead on, for example, like leftist groups advocating political opposition to Zionism, how, how you feel about what's going on right now. Well, I am, uh, you know, I am certainly uh, despondent. <laughs> I guess I can't I think of another word right now to to see that Jewish groups who who uh, have been and continue to be targets <clears throat> of white supremacist organizations, almost giving it no attention whatsoever at a time when white supremacy uh, in this country and I would say around the world is on an unprecedented rise. There is not one organization that any longer tracks uh, white supremacists, their work, and their organizations in this country. <clears throat> we do not have a Southern Poverty Law Center, for example. In the heyday of Canadian Jewish Congress, and even B'nai B'rith uh, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, we tracked them very studiously because we knew them to be the enemy uh, that, that they were, and you're quite right. I mean, I, I took some, there, there were chances that I took, and I became a bit of a target, etc., and today, with the shift in thinking that, you know, it's all about Islamic terrorism, so-called, all the time, I still believe that it's, uh, that our attention has is, is, is been diverted. Uh, we're going to be surprised one day to find ourselves in the middle of some very, very serious consequences. Mm. So just getting back to what you were saying about dialogue as something that's missing, I have some difficulty with this as a framework. I feel like often it's used to sort of suggest a level playing field between the two communities, if that makes sense. Whereas, you know, like, like I grew up in Thornhill, I grew up in the modern Orthodox community there. And in the institutions that I grew up in, the kind of discussions and the kind of speeches after Dovening in the morning that I would hear resemble a lot of the kind of gotcha videos that are, that are being circulated from the Muslim community by these Jewish institutions now. And people in the Jewish community who are saying these things or doing these things aren't targeted in the way that Amin al-Khosrawi is, for example. You know, you have people like Mayor Weinstein, who not only says these things, but acts on them, actively targeting Muslim and Arab people violently. And he doesn't have to worry about his livelihood being threatened or having national media organizations or Arab groups descend on him in this way. And so to me, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I think the difference is. Um, And and, and it's in no way to excuse, uh, you know, what what, what you've just said. I too have been targeted by the Jewish right, by the JDL and others. You know, I kind of get it. But I think for the most part, groups like the JDL are seen as outside the mainstream of Jewish communal life. I'm not so sure even the mainstream leadership uh, groups, be it Sija or B'nai B'rith or friends of Simon Wiesenthal, really speak for anybody but the leadership themselves. And in terms of what you've said in in, in relation to similar kinds of things coming out of shuls in Toronto, I I hear you. 
most of those are done on Saturday, so they're not filmed and they're not put up online. And if all we're going to do is concentrate on who said what when and, you know, uh, who shit on who at what particular time, I'm not so sure that that is going to lead to a road of what is really needed in this country, and that is understanding and dialogue and, and reconciliation. I mean, I think, I think what I'm getting at, though, is that there are elements within the Jewish community that are leveraging their access to through whiteness to power to attack the Muslim community in a way that I don't think is reciprocal or a way that I don't think that community has as much access to. So while maybe there is animosity on both sides, I think it's a very uneven playing field to talk about conflict. Like, I don't think it's conflict when you're starting from that basis. I, I agree with you. Uh, my my concern is, wh- where do we go with that? Um, you know, we can acknowledge it, that yes, there is a concept of white privilege that we have. There has been, you know, an unfair advantage in terms of how members of the Jewish community or Jewish leadership or those that speak allegedly on behalf of Jews, and even those that get the newsprint have represented this issue. I, I don't know how that moves us forward other than to acknowledge it once we get into dialogue and find ways to uh, to talk about it. I mean, that's really what we need to do in the long run is find the road to dialogue as opposed to uh, saying you did this and you did that. I feel like when we think about this problem or these problems, there's two pieces. There's like how the Jewish community, capital J, capital C, interacts with Muslim communities and then how we deal with that problem internally, right? Um, And I think that your hesitancy to assign blame is definitely valid in the context of how Jewish communities interact with Muslim communities. But in terms of how we do our own homework and how we figure out the dynamics that are at play within the community, I think it is important to acknowledge what's going on, right? I have acknowledged what's going on. You know, there, there are those in our community that have stood, sadly, arm-in-arm, you know, the JDL have been out uh, picketing at Nathan Phillips Square and and being arm-in-arm with neo-Nazis, for goodness sakes. Uh, That's been reported in the Canadian Jewish News of all places. You know, what troubles me is that no one in our community seems to uh, give a damn. I mean, nobody's saying anything. I'm shocked, to be quite honest. But where where is there a place to have those discussions today? Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't have them. I, I think looking inward is always a, an excellent step to uh, moving outward. And maybe sort of tying a bow around this tangent, I think that often there are examples in which dialogue is not actually a useful tool for challenging power. And I'm I'm curious if you've come across similar circumstances in your work. Well, I, I think we've all come across similar circumstances in, in the development uh, of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Canada and, and, and similar reconciliation commissions elsewhere. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a model that can be used in, in this instance because I'm not sure how far down that road we have gone. But I'm really still looking at simple steps. And if simple steps means bringing two or three well-known leaders of the Muslim community and well-known leaders of the Jewish community to sit down and have a cup of coffee just to start something, that to me is progress. But we're not even there yet. I'm just wondering if, as situations like this are increasing, I wonder if we should, if you think we should be talking about 
these Jewish institutions that are taking these positions differently, especially in relationship to their engagement with anti-Semitism? Do you think we should be talking about these groups as groups that have anything to say about this subject, or even, and to a certain respect, Jewish groups? That, it's, a, it's a very good question. I mean, I don't know which Jewish groups now seriously understand what anti-Semitism really means. You know, if if the entire context of anti-Semitism is going to be played out through an, uh, you know, an Islamophobic lens, which seems to be very much what's happening today, then that's that's a real worry. You know, I, I wrote a piece on Gavin McInnes. We all know who Gavin McInnes is. You know, he was poor boys. He was a he, he originated Vice, but then went way way to the right and ended up with Rebel and uh, went to Israel a short time ago and and released two films that were so virulently anti-Semitic. I mean, I don't think that I I could remember in my time uh, you know, two films like that. One was you know Ten Things I Hate About Jews. And one was this rant on the Holocaust, which can only be described, in my view, as, as you know, Holocaust denial of the worst kind. Um, and, and I wrote about it. A couple of other people wrote about it. People were excusing Gavin McInnes, people in our own community, as, well, he was trying to sort of be funny and was a joke that went bad. And how does one joke about uh, hating Jews? And how does one joke about the Holocaust in, in the way that he did? It was... It was mind-boggling, really, that there were attempts, you know, to, to do just that. So it, it is as though we've lost our way, that Jewish groups that prided themselves in defending Jews and, and defending them against the Jew hatred have kind of lost the understanding and definition of real anti-Semitism. And, and there are still people that can help get it back, but the institutional memories are no longer there. Today, you know, the lens is, is just someplace else. So I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what to say about it. There, there just have to be those that I have to continue to hope we will see and understand what has to be done. Well, Bernie, thanks so much for talking to us about this. I know we both really appreciate the work you're doing here, and, and thanks for doing it. Well, I, I appreciate it, and I'm always happy to talk to you guys. Take care. Bye-bye. So that was our interview with Bernie Farber. Um, David, do you have anything to add at this point in the show? Yeah, yeah. For people who are interested in reading more about the way that national Jewish groups have become so singularly focused on anti-Muslim politics, there's an article that was written in BuzzFeed News a few days ago with a title as Zionist groups in Canada are jumping on the creeping Sharia bandwagon that talks a bit about how these groups have become aligned with far-right conspiracy theorists uh, within the Canadian context. Yeah, that was a great piece. Shout out to Stephen Zhu uh, for writing it, and we will put a link to it somewhere on the website. Uh, But Sam, do you have anything to add before we wrap up? I do. It is not a constructive article. It is shameless self-promotion, which I think sometimes we have to do on the podcast. We are planning a series of talks in two regions in the United States of America around St. Paul, Minnesota and around uh, Washington to give an anti-Semitism workshop both in the Midwest and in the Northwest. If you are interested in having us come to your school and doing a workshop, please get in touch, trafepodcast.gmail.com, because we are trying to plan dates at schools that are relatively close by to one another. 
And as usual, if you are listening to the show and you're thinking to yourself, I would love to share an anecdote, respond to something I heard on the show, a strange experience in relationship to uh, the Jewish institutional world. Well, you can actually share this on the Shrave podcast. Just send us a voice memo that you record on any device, uh, your phone, computer. Yeah, what, what other devices do you have in mind? David? I mean, you could actually use a microphone. That may be a different quality than the average voice memo. Yeah, what about a yak back? You'd have to play it into a phone. Or you could send the yak back to us. Yeah, you could mail us the yak back. And if someone presses the wrong button in shipping, though, it'd probably be deleted. You would probably have to put it in like a firm container. Yeah. Yeah. Any way you'd like it to get it to us, primarily by sending it to trafepodcast at gmail.com. Although I'm very open to this yak back idea. Yeah. Just keep it to about one to two minutes. Start with your name and where you're calling from. And uh, you can share your thoughts with Trafe listeners on our uh, next full episode. Speaking of voice memos and Mm -hmm. expressing your opinions and feelings via a voice memo. I'd love to know where you're going with this one. What about expressing your feelings and opinions about Trafe Podcast? Uh, Okay, I see where you're going here. David, what is the best place to do that? Um, The comfort of your own home? Nope. On uh, iTunes.com. Oh, iTunes.com. Very Actually, I don't think it's iTunes.com. But on, <laughs> on iTunes, you can rate us five stars, write a nice little note. Or um, any, any meta stars you'd like. Well, probably five. Whatever you think is appropriate. And write, write a nice note. If it's, if it's a good enough note, I don't know what the standard of good enough is, but if it reaches that standard, we'll read it on the podcast. Oh, interesting. New uh, Trafe contests. The reason that we encourage people to fill out these iTunes reviews is for our ego. Uh, we don't have access to the institutional platform that most Jewish community media does, so we rely on our listeners to tell folks about the show. Speaking of relying on our listeners, oh uh, please, <laughs> uh, I am three for three on the segues today. Um, we have a Patreon account. That's true as well. And we are very grateful for the sum that we receive on a monthly basis. It's really helped cover the cost of the show and also enabled us to do interviews in places we wouldn't have been able to do them before. That is very accurate. I just wanted to say that if people are listening and appreciate the show and feel like they can support in any way, there are a million more important things to support. And we have a list on our Patreon for those other entities and Patreons. Mm -hmm. But if you feel like you can give any amount of money to help us put the show together that i did like a hand gesture of thanks as i was saying that which you can't see but it's sincere is what he's saying yes it's sincere i'm gesticulating a whole lot right now but with all that said we will now bid you adieu adieu until our show in two weeks from now please be with you thanks for listening Brave Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Yanagahaga territory. Thanks as always to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design, to Kira Page, our social media consultant, to Cadence O'Neill, who designed TravePodcast.com, to Sack Syndrome and So Called for the music you heard in the episode, and Ariana Katz, the Trave staff rabbi. You can follow us on some social media accounts at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, principally Facebook and Twitter. You can send nice messages, not nice messages, general inquiries to trafepodcast at gmail.com. See you soon. I think it's time to bring back the the Marvel Hour on Trafe Podcast. No, oh, I don't know about this. Have you? <laughs> and by bring back, you mean try again to get it into the show? Yes. Have you had a chance to see the new Thor movie? I have not. 
I actually haven't seen it either. Brought to you by Disney. 